Welcome to Mosey Motifs, a podcast dedicated to exploring the diversity and relevance of symphonic music. The Missouri Symphony is sponsoring Mosey Motifs in partnership with the Missouri Humanities Council and with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. This show is hosted by Missouri Symphony's Director of Education and Outreach, Dr. Ashley Pribble. A motif is a short phrase of music that an entire piece is based on, so each season of this podcast will have its own motif. For season one, Mosey Motifs will explore the world of black and indigenous musicians of color, interviewing composers, conductors, and even musicologists as they share their own personal experiences in the world of classical music. Today's guest is Dr. Stephanie Shonakan. Stephanie Shonakan is Professor of Music and Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Science at the University of Missouri. In 2003, she earned her PhD in Ethnomusicology and Folklore with a minor in African American Studies from Indiana University. Her dual heritage, combining West Africa with the West Indies, allows her to straddle the Black world comfortably. She has published articles on Afrobeat, Felakuti, as well as American and Nigerian hip-hop. Her publications explore the intersection where identity, history, culture, and music meet. Her books include The Life of Camilla Williams, African-American Classical Singer and Opera Diva, Soul Country in the USA, Race, Identity, and American Music Culture, Black Lives Matter and Music, and Black Resistance in the Americas. Welcome to Dr. Stephanie Shanakan, uh, who comes to us from the University of Missouri. If you just want to tell us a little bit about what you do there at Mizzou. Sure, Ashley. Um, thanks for having me. So I am an associate dean of the College of Arts and Science. And so I have sort of responsibility to keep an eye on graduate studies faculty development, and what we call inclusive culture. Um, But I'm also a professor of music, and I get to teach a a class once a year. And my research is as an ethnomusicologist. I study music and culture. um, And so I'm, I'm glad that I get to do that as well as the administrative work. You publish on a lot of different topics and you teach about a lot of different topics, including pop music, race and uh, activism. But you actually started your work in your dissertation on in the classical realm. So I was wondering if you just talk a little bit about sort of how you got started playing Western art music. Are you a singer? Are you a performer? And sort of how you ended up getting into that topic? Mm-hmm. So I started off actually in studying literature. So my first degree, my undergrad and my my master's degree are in literature um, and started off with English literature and then branched out to the literature of the Black diaspora. And during my master's, I, I stumbled upon a topic that I just fell in love with, which was looking at jazz and poetry. That led me to ethnomusicology, which is what I did for my PhD. And as you've said, Ashley, my my dissertation was actually about, um, I wanted to look at Black identity, which is um, the topic that I'd been sort of, that that journey had already been, been started in terms of looking at 
Black literature. And of course, as a Black woman myself, I'm interested in, in issues of Black identity. And so I, want, I was interested in Black identity as it had to do with classical music or, or art music, understanding that, the, that art music, um, as it's conceived of in conservatories, as well as in music schools, is typically music of the Western canon. And so I was, I was intrigued by that. And I went to Indiana University, which is where I got my PhD. And at Indiana, we had a, a woman who had been one of the um, first, she was a pioneer as a Black woman in classical music. She was a professor of opera and she was a voice a voice teacher at the at Indiana University and I I ended up working with with her her name is Camilla Williams um, and I was mostly interested in uh, in looking at her journey what it meant for a young black woman who was born and raised in in the deep south during segregation how it was that she became the first black woman to sign a major contract with a major um, opera company, which was the New York City Opera um, in 1946. So I ended up working with her as an ethnomusicologist, which is more of a, an anthropological field. We do field research, um, we do interviews and, and so on. So she became my field and, I've, and, and, and I got a chance to work with her, interview her for about two years and um, my dissertation was about that that journey, working with Camilla to figure out how she navigated the terrain. Very tricky in terms of how classical music and American history were such were full of such hurdles for someone like her. So so that was my first publication was my dissertation on on not only Camilla but in terms of looking at how black singers were how they how they navigated into classical music Was that your uh, first experience with conservatory culture, classical music culture, or did you have any other experiences before that? I did not. I did not have any other experiences before that. Up to that point, I had, of course, been, you know, well, well versed in American popular music, which even though I grew up in Nigeria, American popular music was very popular, was, was very popular there over radio, television. Um, I grew up watching Soul Train, you know, and knew a lot about, you know, had heard a lot of country music. And so I knew a lot about that, that kind of music, of course, with as well as Nigerian music and African music and the Caribbean, of course, because my mother is from Trinidad. So I knew, I knew a lot about Black music coming into graduate school. Classical music, though, even though it, it, was it was definitely part of my upbringing as well, I didn't pay much scholarly attention to it. When I met Camilla, 
um, and when I decided that this would be an interesting subject, I be- I quickly became uh, I-, I had to plunge myself into it, and Camilla herself then be- then became somewhat of a teacher for me. That's such an interesting and sort of different way of getting into the subject than I think most of our guests are going to have. So I'm really excited that you bring this really different sort of almost outsider perspective to this culture and to this music. This first season of Mosey Motifs, our podcast, is going to be all about the BIPOC, so that's Black, Indigenous, People of Color experience in classical music. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about race more generally and how it was constructed, the history of it. I know it's a huge topic, so I'm just asking for, you know, something to help center our listeners a little bit. So, um, you know, this is something I, I ended up really thinking about a lot in my dissertation because, you know, that's that's the that's the sort of core from which Camilla's career blossomed, you know. Um, and so when I started looking back at classical music and race, it became clear that classical music has been a very um, exclusive space and it has not been welcoming of people of color and has not been welcoming of, of other kinds of folks. And so when I started to, to trace it back, it became clear that even though African-Americans have, have performed and been associated with it through um, as early as the arranged spirituals, when African-Americans were, you know, were emancipated and became parts of higher education and therefore places like Fisk University and Hampton University started um, getting these, these choirs. What those, those groups did was they took their Negro spirituals and they put them on, on the score, right? They, they arranged them in a way that would be palatable to a, a much wider uh, section of mainstream um, American listeners and so but 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 again that was that was not open you know the the field of classical music was not open to them and yet african-americans have have spent because they are american um and have that double consciousness about them that is part you know you know i argue that that is part of their of their legacy as well you know that that they are as Du Bois said, as W.E.B. Du Bois said, African Americans are both are both American and they are African, you know. And so that field, you know, the field of classical music should be open to to them as well.
found really interesting about studying Camilla was that, you know, throughout the first half of the 20th century, we had African-Americans succeed in in, um, classical music. So throughout the first half of the 20th century, we did have African-Americans do good work and make inroads into classical music. But for why I think Camilla was such, why I thought, and I still think she's such an important uh, part of the history, is that not only did she get to sign a contract with a major company like the New York City Opera, but her 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 first role was as was in Madame Butterfly, which means that she did not have to start in classical music at that level in a porgy and bess or in in a, a program that was created for black people this was a, a major role that was not necessarily written for a black person with a black person in in mind of course these questions are still with us as we even think about you know television shows and um and other you know the ballet you know where where african americans are not necessarily the um they're, they're not thought about as in in the main roles and yet she was able to to get that done in 1946 you know often when i've talked about camilla i've i've been challenged with you know she's not the first one there's always marian anderson and that's true marian anderson is is important and 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 needs to be at the at the top of anybody's list when we talk about black music black art music um singers but Camilla signed a contract for opera. Um, up to that point, Marin Anderson had had sung beautifully and very importantly on the concert stage. Yes, but not in a major opera. So um, that's the that's the difference. Now, since 1946 and on, of course, we've got lots of names of of um, African Americans who have done well in classical music. But I think that's still it's still a still a handful, right? That you know there there aren't pages of of, of names. There are there are still just a few. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a student here at Mizzou, um, which is where I teach, who is an amazing singer, African American singer. She graduated a couple years ago, and she um, talked about how she would go to auditions in the music school. Um, and never get the lead role because, you know, she was, the role was not written with a black person in mind. And so that, so the default is never going to be a a black person. And that, so that we're still having those conversations in 2020, this happened, she graduated in a couple years ago. So let's say in 2020 or in 2019, that we're still having this conversation should, should give us all pause. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting because especially in opera and ballet where the the body is so presented, whereas in symphonic music, a lot of people think of it as, oh, the body is not as present. And so you see other sorts of barriers to access um, to more instrumental classical music as well, um, including just this idea of of who who this music belongs to. And I think there is this idea that classical music is a white European music. And while there is a history of exclusivity, especially when we start 
getting into conservatory practices and things like that, uh, the history is not completely white. So do you see classical music as a white music? And how do we then integrate it and to be more accepting? Mm -hmm. And then the second part of that is how can we then also sort of restore the history of composers and performers of color? So to the first question, um, uh, do we see classical music as a white music? You know, the answer that I will give you is probably the same answer that I would give if someone asked me about another kind of music that I study and teach about, which is country music. Is country music a white music, right? Country music, if you ask any African-American of a certain generation, they will say that they love country music. They grew up with country music in the South. You know, there are Black people who have played and created country music. There are country music artists who were inspired by Black music. So it's very, it's, it's very much an American music. And yet when you look at the audience and when you look at the sort of the, the, the subject matter, um, when you look at how the industry has shaped country music, we conclude that it is... Uh, white, you know, it is it is predominantly a white music, you know, with white folks. I am reminded of last year, I believe, when a young woman in country music, she she wrote a song and she she produced a song called Black Like Me, and her name is Mickey Guyton, and you know, she's a country music artist. She's very good, and yet when she played that, when she released that song, there was a lot of back, backlash from the country music establishment. And then when you also look at the number of Black people who have made it into country music, that number is, I mean, maybe two handfuls. You know, I'm thinking of Charlie Pride, who recently passed. You know, folks will point to him, they'll point to Darius Rucker, and maybe Mickey Guyton. And, and so when you look at the number, um, you also have to, to conclude that, you know, this seems to not be a music, a music that is welcoming of, of Black people. So the same thing I would say for, for country music. It is not, I would, I would say that, yes, most of the masters of classical music are Western, are from the Western canon. But, you know, again, growing up in, in Nigeria, we had composers um, in in West Africa, we, as as you probably know, composers like um, Kwabena Nketia, who is also an ethnomusicologist, an, an example like Fela Showande, who was a Nigerian composer. And of course, here in the, in the United States, we had William Grant Still and so many other um, African-American composers. So classical music should not be seen as a white, as white music, but um, we look at the audience, we look at the people who get um, access to the, the the performances and the lead roles, and we and we then are left to conclude, especially when we look at what the curriculum in our in our conservatories and in our music schools are. We are left to conclude that indeed there is a predominance of white people and white culture, and I say that carefully as we as we contend with to have an ideology in this country of white supremacy you know what does that mean for our our pedagogies what does that mean for our curriculum in our conservatories in our humanities as well as in the sciences i think it's a very important conversation 
Yeah, I think that's something that we're also trying to reckon with here at the Missouri Symphony is how do we celebrate this music that we love that has been so weaponized in the past as a tool of white supremacy. And I think, you know, these sorts of conversations are always difficult because there's no easy answers. If there were, uh, maybe we would have done them already. I don't know. What are some ways that you think we could make this music more inclusive? Obviously, there's a lot of levels of entry into classical music. So whether it's as an audience member or as a performer or as a composer, but also, you know, starting young, if you're going to be a performer, many of these instruments require that students start at an extremely young age. And so, so what are some ways that we can make this uh, a more welcoming and inviting and inclusive environment for children and performers of all backgrounds and races? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are many things that we can do. We just have to be creative. Um, over here at the University of Missouri, um, we've just We've just started a, a new a new scholarship. A donor um, has given us some money to help pay for music lessons for um, for for students in K twelve who are um, people of color. You know, so students of 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 color, and they could be um, black students. They could be students of from from any ethnic group. You know, that is not represented in in our in our school of music um not well not well represented um and so that's i think that that's a wonderful gesture you know to understand that music lessons are expensive you know these instruments are expensive um and so if we truly want to sort of broaden and open up those those borders to access then we need to to figure out um innovative ways of of doing so so i think that that's that's an example. Um, and so I think that announcement is just going out so that students in, in middle school and in high school can take advantage of that. Um, other things that we should be doing um, is that we should be thinking about what our curriculum is. You know, if, if students look at, us, at the School of Music and at the programming that comes out of the School of Music or a conservatory and they see only a certain kind of, of music, they're not likely to, to feel that they would be welcome there, you know, um, if, if, they, if they don't come from, from those, those areas and those, those identities. So I think it's time for our curriculum to sort to change and to expand and to include other masters, other canons. Is, is there a, a place for Fela Shawande or William Grant still in the required courses that, that, our, that our students take? Is it even time to open up what we value as high art, you know, and think about other high art, whether those are high arts from, from India or from uh, Jamaica or from from other parts of the world? Why is high art defined in such a sort of narrow, um, exclusive way that then points to a certain kind of, a certain look and a certain skin color? So we, so we need to sort of break down and redefine some of those definitions that we had previously had. And then, and then we start to, to find, um, I think, 
new audiences and new students and new new composers. Where every time I've said this, I know colleagues are, you know, they get up, they get nervous about, you know, what am I trying to, to do to Mozart and Beethoven? And I always say, you know, let's leave them where they are. You know, they are, they are still masters of, of music that our students should study. But our students should also be allowed to, to study other, other composers as well, and not just these, these European composers. I think that that would speak volumes to new generations of, of listeners. Not only will they come in and be excited to study, let's say, Stevie Wonder, but they would also be intrigued by, by how Stevie Wonder's music is in conversation, let's say with, 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 Mo, with Mozart, right? Is, is that possible? Is that possible in the realm of, of new ways and more creative ways of thinking about um, what we offer our, our audiences and our students? Yeah, I love that, of course. My background is in the Broadway musical, so I also am in the, okay. the pop world, but a pop world that is much closer to sort of the traditional art music world. I mean, Porgy and Bess did premiere on a Broadway stage, so exactly. uh, those, these things are not as separate, I think, also as, as many of our students think of them. Yeah, I, I love this idea. I've been thinking about this term artistic excellence because I feel like it's a term that's often used to dismiss anything that doesn't sort of fit a very specific parameter. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about what happens if we apply our concepts of diversity to what that means. So like a diversity of artistic excellence. And I think what you're saying here is really a lot about that, right? Is is about really trying to look and, and widen our understanding of what is excellent. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's something, Ashley, I keep thinking about also, because here at the University of Missouri and every and most every campus um, in this country, there's this idea of inclusive excellence, you know, and and often I don't really I, I would like someone to, to tell me what that means. You know, what does it mean when we are inclusive excellently? Right. Um, and so um, I've been you know, I think some campuses have, and some spaces have defined that as diversity. So let's bring in one tenor, you know, one black tenor, and therefore we are inclusively excellent. And so I've been pushing back on, on that, you know, even if, even at the, at the, at the level of, you know, let's bring in more black faculty, let's bring in more, more black, black students. That's really great and wonderful, but how do we keep them? You know, how do we retain these faculty these students, and in, in, in this case, these audiences? Do we just throw on a Porgy and Bess as a, as a way of attracting those, those audiences? I would say that um, it's, it's important to look at the culture of the space so that even if we 
even when we do bring in new audiences, they meet a culture within our symphony halls, within our performance spaces that is truly welcoming because they look up at the at the portraits of com- of com- composers and they see people that look like them. You know, they look at the program for next year and it's not Porgy and Bess, it's something else, but it's something that includes them, you know, and, and includes their histories, right? They can look at the composers that are supported by the organization and they can see a sustained and a sustainable model for for reaching them. Um, so 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 I would say we need a lot of us, I think, need to kind of step back and think about what it means to be excellent in a in a sustainable and sustained way. Um, and I don't I don't think a lot of us have have done that. I think there's also this very culturally Western idea of that only the virtuosos, only the best performers, whatever that means and however that gets judged, you know, deserve to be heard, deserve to play. And and when you look at other musical practices outside of Western art music, there's a lot more communal music making, a lot more community coming together. And I think, you know, I when I think of also what does it mean to be inclusively excellent or diversely excellent can we even redefine that term excellence Mm -hmm. to mean I don't know bringing the community together can that be a measure of excellence as well Mm -hmm. I love that I think I think I think that is so brilliant because yes we do I think this whole culture is a culture of of individual stars you know I even think about it in terms of hip-hop hip hop was so much more interesting when there were groups, you know, and posses and so on. And now it's a, it's a space where, again, framed and nurtured by the industry and by, you know, an A&E an a e group of, of, of people, marketing folks to, to value individual stars. And so that, that idea has, I think, has come from sort of a Western capitalist structure and come away from the folk, right? The, the, the folk or the groups and this idea of community um, is something that we've, that I think we've, we've really lost. And if we could get back to the, the notion of community, the notion of the folk, I think we would have a much different lens on what it means to be excellent at every level. And certainly um, in the, classical music world. I think this is great. I really am just super excited about, you know, what what these possibilities could be. But of course, that means a lot of change has to happen and a lot of people have to sort of change their mind. So you mentioned this new program for private lessons at Mizzou. I know you're doing other work at Mizzou. So I was just wondering um, what other kinds of things are you, initiatives are you working on at Mizzou? Uh, what can we do to support these initiatives, these sorts of questions? Thank you. That's great. Um, so one of the things that I'm working on, which I st- had started some time ago, and then as you may know, I left Mizzou for a couple of years and came back 
this year, but, and I'm continuing this. Um, so it's a program called Citizenship at Mizzou. And it's a program that we started because of what happened on the campus in 2015. And so in 2015, for those, um, for your audience or your listeners who who will who didn't follow news of, of what happened here. A group of students at Mizzou kind of shed, shed light on what it was like to be a, a Mizzou student um, of, of color um, and to, be, to walk on a campus where they were called the N-word, where they, were, where they did not feel welcome. And so there was a whole movement at Mizzou. And as a result of that movement, it got a lot of a, a, um, national attention because of the... Um, because of the the fact that the football player stepped in and all of that. So it's drama. But um, as a result of all of that, I saw some really incredible things happen here at at Mizzou. Um, One actually came out of the music school. One of my colleagues in the music school who is the choir, he's he's in charge of of the choir. He's our maestro of the choir, um, Paul Crabb. He is one of my colleagues who I thought did incredible work he empowered one of his students, a Black student by the name of E.J. Harrison, to compose a, a piece that was performed by the university choir. Um, and it, the piece was, was called Anthem. It was one of the ways that I felt that exemplified what is possible, which is a white professor who, who made a choice. So these are all choices. You know, we we don't even have to, to, he didn't have to, to do that, but he decided that he was going to allow his grad student, EJ was a grad student at the time, to compose a piece that was then performed um, publicly. And the piece was called Anthem, and it was all about what happened at Mizzou in 2015 from the perspective of Black students. And then um, as a result of also what, what happened at that time, we um, started this citizenship at Mizzou program where I was given the um, responsibility of coming up with some kind of program to get our campus, our students to think about what it means to be a good, a good citizen of the campus. And that was all about figuring out how to discuss race and identity and sexuality and all and all these things religious differences all of that and so what we did was we used music you know we used we i worked with a group of students one i think only one of them was a music minor everybody else was a a major in some other um department and we created this group called talking drum and we we met every we had auditorium filled auditoriums full of first year students. And we played music and got them to talk about what the music said, you know? So we picked out, like we had a, a list of maybe f- five songs each time. So sometimes we we changed them out and, and had other songs, but they were, you know, just simple American classic songs like Bob Dylan's um, Blowing in the Wind. Um, they would perform it. My students would per- would per- perform it. And then we would ask our, our first year students to help us think about what that means when these big questions are still blowing in the wind. And I was amazed, not surprised, but gratified by how effective that was to invite students in. Some of these students come from small rural towns in Missouri. They've never thought about race. They've never thought about the 
difficult parts of American history. And so they were told that they had to, to do this mandatory training, which they have to, to, to do that for alcohol awareness. They have to do that for Title IX. And now they have to, to, to do another one for diversity. And so they come in, you know, these students come in and some of them are from cities, some from small towns, and they're, they're, they're not happy. And yet they come into to the auditorium and see a and see their peers on stage with their instruments. And the music is, is like a light, it's like a concert, but it's a concert that invites conversation after every piece. And I was just blown away by how powerful that was. Um, these students sat down and paid attention and engaged. And sometimes those conversations were difficult, but on the whole, they really, engaged our students and and had them think about what it means to have values that are respectful of of everyone in in the room on the campus so i think that's one other example that i would offer you know is that music is powerful you know and that and that sometimes the music can take the sort of the anxiety down to be able to get back in on the ground floor and start those, those conversations up again. Um, and so that's, that's, been, that's been powerful. This semester and this year, we've not been able to, to be in auditoriums, of course. But what we've done is that we've, um, since we can't have a live band this year, we have picked, I think we have 17 incredible albums that we've used. This week, I just did a session on Bruce Springsteen's his album, The Ghost of Tom Joad, that album, I had 77 students yesterday, first years, meet with me in, in, in a Zoom room um, and discuss Bruce Springsteen's um, album. That really is something that I would offer as, as an example of what can be done. I love that. Uh, you're making me miss uh, university settings for sure. But also I love how you're just bringing in all different kinds of music. And I think this sort of seeing all these musics as important, as equally valid, as good is something that, you know, any musician or audience member, you know, you don't have to like everything. I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I don't like Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but um, you don't have to like everything. Yeah, um, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting ready now for my class that I'm teaching this semester, and it's called Introduction to Soul and Country Music. And I get students, I've taught that class now for years, and I love that class because you get students who don't like soul music, but love country music and vice versa. Um, and that class is just, it's just so special because by the end of the semester, these students realize that they're not as different as, as they thought they were, you know, but they also get to the questions about how these musics define the parameters of our understandings of race, of gender, of religion, of patriotism, and and so on. So, so yeah, you don't have to you don't have to like it, but um, as scholars, we have to con to consider it and contend with it. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much for agreeing to be our first guest. And um, where can people find you if they want to know more about what you're doing at Mizzou? 
So if I could also add, I can't believe I didn't say this, but I'm also co-director of a brand new center at the University of Missouri called the Michael A. Middleton Center for Race, Citizenship and Justice. Um, and part of that, of our mission is to bring in conversations about race and the arts, race, citizenship and justice as they have to, to do with the sciences, the arts, the humanities. Um, we're very, and of course, as co-director, I'm very interested in conversations like this with, with folks about race and music. So the Middleton Center is um, a new center and the, the website for that is middletoncenter.missouri.edu. And so um, you can definitely find me there as well as find me on the School of Music webpage as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming. This episode of Mosey Motifs has been brought to you by the Missouri Symphony and the Missouri Humanities Council. For a list of musical examples used in this episode, please check our show notes. The entirety of each work, as well as more music related to today's episode, can be found on our YouTube page. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider donating to the Missouri Symphony at www.themosey.org donate. And as always, thank you for listening to Mosey Motifs.